Mission 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Hello and welcome, Heather Knight, to our first podcast since Total SF Movie Night number seven, aka the time that I made Heather watch a Star Trek movie. Yes, I'm never going to forgive you. You know what? I don't think we need to relitigate Star Trek Four, Heather. So let me just ask you, did you have a favorite scene? I did have one scene that I enjoyed, and that was when um, they were in a muni bus going across the Golden Gate Bridge, and there's that um, punk kid uh, with his very loud music. Um, that is an awesome scene. Yeah. So I have excellent news for you. The man who played that punk rocker, who wrote the song that's on the boombox, Kirk Thatcher, is our guest today on Total SF. Uh, Thatcher's done a ton of stuff. He's really involved with the Muppets. He was working for ILM on Return of the Jedi. We talk about that a lot, but we get into detail about Star Trek IV and the greatest single scene in SF movie-making history. You have very good taste, Heather. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to argue with you on that. Excellent. Um, and we don't need to argue because we're moving forward um, <laughs> after this interview. Excellent interview. Uh, we have picked our next movie night. And Heather, you get to pick it. Our next movie will be... It will not feature spaceships or whales. Instead, it's a romantic comedy. It is Always Be My Maybe with Ali Wong. Okay, so February 13th, um, 7 p.m. again. We're going to start this thing up. Sounds good. And I'm thinking like a couple of themes here. We've definitely got a Valentine's Day theme. Yeah, that's why I picked it. I told you I was going hardcore rom-com this time because I'm still angry at you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And also... uh, Richmond District. We're going to do a Richmond District small business theme. We've been supporting the Balboa Theater throughout these. We'll continue to do that. Um, You and I will go out there that day. Maybe bring the Norton mascot costume. But we also want to expand it and just get people thinking about the Richmond District supporting small businesses there. Yes, we're calling it I Love the Richmond. Get it? For Valentine's Day. So we will have more to come on that. But um, the theme is supporting our neighborhoods and small businesses which definitely need the help. Yeah, so February 13th, we're going to all turn on that movie at 7 p.m., and um, it's going to be fun. We'll have more details on our Twitter feeds. We'll probably send out a newsletter, but just announcing right now, circle that date, February 13th. And we're taking suggestions for hashtags. We seem to always get them trending on these nights, so it's got to be a good one. Yeah, we got double dumbass on you trending. (laughs) (laughs) After... SF Ruins Pizza for Inside Out yeah. was like trending nationally. So yeah, we've got to find a good one. Well, I'm going to get the final word, Heather. Star Trek Four is excellent. Um, my favorite San Francisco movie. And we have Kirk Thatcher coming up. Every one of your punk on the bus questions answered. I'm Peter Hartlob here with Heather Knight. And this is Total SF. Thank you very much. Kirk Thatcher, 
I am thrilled to have you on Total SF. You are a legend in San Francisco, and I'm only sorry that you can't be here. We're doing this virtually. I I wish I love San Francisco. I miss the heck out of it um, because I lived there for off and on for about three and a half, four years, not consecutively. But uh, yeah, I love it up there. And my family was from there. My mom was from there. So I had an insider's tour as a child when we'd go up and visit family and stuff. So yeah, and I still have family there. Lots of people in the Bay Area. So I love it and miss it. It's very, I feel like home when I'm there, even though I grew up in LA, uh, it feels like home to me. Well, if they haven't given you the key to the city for your work here, um, I am I'm virtually doing that right now. I, I got to tell you that I want to start because I know your career starts before Star Trek Four, and we're going to talk yeah. about that. Um, I can't figure out the math because you were in Return of the Jedi, and, and I mean, you worked for ILM yeah. during Return yeah. of the Jedi, and it oh. must have been when you were in your teens. I, I was 18 when I got the job. I was hired in the beginning, like January, early February of uh, 1920, 1981. And I had I turned 19 in February 14th of Valentine's Day that year, and every year actually. And um, so, yeah, I was hired at 18 and then my birthday happened and I moved up. So technically yeah, I was still a teenager. 19 is still a teenager. But yeah, I... Uh, Started, I was the youngest guy there, along with David Fincher, for about a year and a half. We, <laughs> yeah. were, we, we would we would page each other on the uh, PA system. Baby Dave, call Baby Kurt. <laughs> yeah. So you were you were. I, how did you get involved? You know, I, when I, I was I, a teenager, I wanted to be working yeah. for ILM. But how did that connection <laughs> get made? It, it was you know, it's uh, luck favors the prepared, and also uh, just fortunate to grow up in LA. I, I grew up mm-hmm. in Van Nuys. Uh, which coincidentally was very close to where ILM was, the original ILM that did the first Star Wars movie. And uh, brief story, my mom came home from church one day, I was 14 or about 15, and said, hey, I met, I met a woman whose son worked on, on Star Wars. I said, oh boy, guy, like, you know, it had come out at this point. So it was mm-hmm. probably June, early summer. And uh, I said, well, what's, what's his name? She goes, well, her name's Johnston, you know, and I think her son's name, I'm like, Joe? She's like, yeah, how'd you know? So I have his book. I've got his sketchbook, you know. So uh, our, our, for our listeners who don't know, Joe Johnston, one, I mean, I, I consider like the holy trilogy. Yeah. Dennis Murin, Tippett, and Joe Johnston in terms yeah. of the people who created the effects yeah. and designed. And he was a he was a designer, too. He, he was. He storyboarded and designed all the effect sequences, was very influential in designing the spaceships, uh, what the X-Wings and all that looked like. Um yeah, and, and so anyway, uh, he uh, gave, you know, I, I called him up and he was really nice. I mean, he was like, <laughs> I was 15 and he was like 27, you know, it's like, <laughs> so the age difference now seems minimal. But at the time, it's a big difference. I was just starting uh, high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anyway, he gave me a tour because it was, I could have ridden my bike there. I think uh, I might have actually, because I don't think any adult was with me and I know I didn't drive. So, uh, yeah, it was a mile and a half away from where I grew up near Van Nuys Airport. So he gave me a tour and I just showed him some drawings that I had done because I'd already been making Super 8 movies with special effects. And I was already an effects nerd because of Ray Harryhausen movies and King Kong and, and, and Star Trek. Uh, and so I said, you know, I want to do what you guys do. I want to work here at, at some point. And I thought, well, this is amazing. I could walk to work every day. I mean, you know, I wasn't expecting it at 15. So he was really nice and, and, you know, looked at my stuff and said, well, keep doing what you're doing. I was focused more on creatures than 
uh, spaceships than design. I wasn't kind of an uh, industrial designer like his background. So anyway, we kept in touch and I went through high school and I graduated high school and went with some buddies up to, uh, after graduating, to San Francisco to spend a week. And we, we, we stayed in Yosemite. We went to the city. We, you know, just kind of took it all in with my next door neighbors, actually, these three guys I grew up with. And part of it was on the weekend, Joe gave us a tour of ILM. Nice. And so I, I gave him this rubber creature, a monster I'd made for a, a high school film uh, for my film class. And he, I found out later, stuck it up on the wall of the uh, creature shop, what it was at that point, which was one room. They called it the rubber room uh, <laughs> for more than one reason. And uh, so I started UCLA as a, I wanted to be a film major. And then I found out you couldn't touch a camera equipment until you were a junior. And I've been making movies since I was 12. So I was frustrated. And so when I heard they were going to make a third Star Wars movie, I, I called them up and said, hey, you know, I'm not going to be able to do anything filmic in school. I will, I'll go make coffee. You know, is there any jobs? Seriously, I'll run the Xerox machine. And it was funny. He said, I just put your name. Uh, Who would you talk to? I said, nobody. He said, I just put your name on a list for people they should interview because George wants a creature shop in uh, Marin County where the ILM had moved to in the Bay Area. And so I got very excited and said, wait, you're kidding. And he's like, no, nobody told you. I said, no, I just thought I'd heard the news. So, you know, somebody up there likes me. I, uh, so again, trying to compress it. I, I brought my portfolio up, interviewed there because they had my creature there and it become like the mascot for the, uh, <laughs> the rubber room for the six to seven months it had been there. They gave me a job because uh, I mean, and the reason they gave me a job is not because Joe said hire this guy because I actually had skills. I mean, I, I they were the I said I did the jobs nobody wanted to do. I mixed up the paint, I set up the paint room, I did mold making, which is kind of a a, a very uh, technical job that's not sexy. You're not really artistic. It's more like being a technician. Um, and I knew how to so I knew how to sculpt, mold, cast, paint, um, and finish a, a creature, a rubber monster. Uh, which it turned out only a few of the guys in the creature shop uh, had done before. A lot of them were from other trades, either like a mechanical engineer who did the eye mechanisms, mechanisms or a guy who was a mold maker but had never really done a full monster suit. So I had this weird little combination of skills like Liam Neeson. <laughs> I have a certain set of, <laughs> specific, certain set of specific set of skills that are very useful. Um, and it was cheap. Because the other thing was, they couldn't get all the guys who'd done this for years who were in L.A. They weren't going to go move up to, to Lucasfilm, mainly because George was notoriously stingy with money. He's like, he's not going to make it worth their while. In other words, I can stay in L.A. and do this for the studios. And George wasn't saying, I'll give you twice what they pay you. He's like, this is Star Wars. This is the biggest movie I've ever. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give you your rate minus 10% or something. I mean, this is what I was told many years later, that he, he wasn't offering... You know, the people like Rick Baker and stuff, They weren't, yeah, yeah. even though they'd helped uh, do the Cantina sequence. Um, so, again, I was cheap, I had the skills, and I was willing to relocate to Marin County, which was not a bastion of filmmaking at the time. You're, um, you're like, you can't go out and get a drink with these guys. And, and it's in San Rafael. It was Kerner Optical. I actually, yeah. I went there when it was still, it, it was yeah. called Kerner, Kerner but yeah. this is pre-internet, so you could fool people by right. calling... Well, it fooled ILM. us. It fooled us when we tried to find it because we, we had the address and we're driving up and down and there's no Lucasfilm. It's just Kerner Optical. <laughs> so I remember having to drive to a phone booth because there weren't cell phones going, Joe, we're, like, I, we're at the address and then there's nothing there. It's some optical company <laughs> laughed. He said, That's, you're at the right place. We just don't have a big sign saying, this is where we made Star Wars. I'm like, oh, okay. 
uh, uh, that makes sense. So anyway, yeah. You're, you're watching the film now. Um, when you watch Return of the Jedi, what do you look at and go, all right, I mixed the paint on that, or I helped mold oh, the yeah. well, play it's on that? It's, it's funny. I still remember very vividly kind of a lot of the process where it was making the molds on the... On the um, Gamorrean guards, or we call them the pig guards, or the Admiral Akbar mixing up. There's a picture of me. It's, in, it's one of the autographed pictures I saw with me and all the Mon Calamari heads sitting behind me because I had painted all of them. Phil, I will say, Phil painted Akbar, uh-huh. the, the main, and then I painted everybody else in the background <laughs> Akbars. And, and so he said, you know, don't just do a, a repetition, play with it, make different versions of this kind of, you know, ethnicity of Mon Calamari. <laughs> so, uh, and in that, I think every picture of me. At ILM at the time, if I'm not busy making a mold, I'm just little grinning like an idiot because hopefully I wasn't an idiot, but I was just, like you said, I was just on cloud nine the whole time. So how do you get there? I mean, I'm trying to, and I'm looking at your overall career. It's like Lucas to Nimoy to Jim. <laughs> well, and Gremlins, you missed Gremlins. So it, the and, quick and version is, yeah. To Dante in there. Yeah. I, so I'm guessing I, well, you just hopped around and, and bring me bring me from there Yes. So whatever stepping stones you took to Star Trek sure. 4. So it's pretty easy. Uh, after ILM was done with, with Jedi, I did a little bit on E.T., painted some E.T. skins, worked a little bit on Poltergeist helping mold something, but little odd jobs. And then basically there wasn't any work. But Chris Wallace, who originally was going to co-run the Creature Shop with Phil Tippett, had left and started his own company, and we'd become friends. And he got this movie. I'd done a couple little projects with him, literally out of his garage, and he got this movie Gremlins. So since uh, ILM was done, I started working with him on Gremlins. And uh, again, set up the mold shop and the paint shop. And there's a few, there's not a lot of pictures of me there because I was working so much. (laughs) But there's a a cute little video of me playing with the early Mogwai puppets that Chris found and sent me. Um, So I had a great time there and then realized through that process, well, and David Fincher and I had become friends and he'd done this video and so we started so i said i don't want to be a mold making guy for the rest of my life um so uh fincher and i formed a a video production company up in the bay area called z street films with my girlfriend at the time was the producer and we made a bunch of rock videos for rick springfield uh the most notable one was bop to drop where there's an alien and he's on a planet and so we did that in like three days and uh, i designed the creature and played the creature and Tony McVeigh, who's one of the main sculptors at Lucasfilm or at ILM, uh, uh, sculpted him. And so Fincher and I started this production company. And then finally I realized, you know what? Rock videos and all that are in LA. And also Pixar at ILM had started and done the uh, couple shots for Star Trek II. Sorry, Star Trek Three. And I'd worked on Star Trek Three a couple days on set. I puppeteered, I think it was about a week on set, I puppeteered the Klingon dog. Oh yeah, that was under. So that I was, was crammed you. under. Yeah, I was under Christopher Lloyd's butt in that chair with my right arms out a hole, and they would put the dog on me, and I would just have him look menacing. Uh, and then I, there was a, a scene where Christopher Lloyd chokes these worms that were bacteria that had grown. So uh-huh. I, I did a, a few days on set on Star Trek Three, and then went back to UCLA to study computer graphics because I'm like, okay, this is going to take over. And I was at UCLA in the animation department learning computer graphics as basic as they were at that time for college students. And a call came out for an assistant to Leonard Nimoy for Star Trek IV. And they said they wanted somebody with a 
uh, effects background who knew film production. I mean, I'd left ILM maybe nine months earlier, so I was tailor-made for this. I went and interviewed with Leonard. We hit it off, and he hired me as assistant. And then during production, they made me associate producer because I was doing so much. So it kind of went... Uh, ILM with Star Wars mainly and a couple other things, Gremlins, and then, uh, well, then videos with Fincher, and then uh, Star Trek IV. Uh, you say you hit it off. I, I'm i curious in what He's, way. And, yeah, and also, sure. just the movie, like, it was such a departure. I mean, and, and I looked up a couple old interviews that we did with Nimoy, and he talks about yes. how he's proud of the fact that there wasn't... An enemy. Uh, there wasn't an enemy. It was, yeah. like, you, the it conflict... Was Man's short-sightedness. Yeah. I was yeah. in a panel about it with Nick Myers, and, and he brought that up, and that's what... It, and he said this, and I agree 100%. It's very Star Trek. You know, Star Trek isn't always the Klingons are going to blow up something. And, it, and it, I mean, that's the nice thing about Star Trek. It can cover everything from ecological disaster to, you know, the infiltrating a government. Um, but... And, and Leonard, it, I would say it came from Leonard. He's an actor. That's his his... And I learned a lot about directing and working with actors from him, which is what I didn't know. I knew all the technical stuff at this point, having worked on two or three epic movies. But uh, being his right-hand guy, I learned that... He's, he, I remember he told me, he said, I want you to do all... to take care of and oversee all the stuff that's technical and, and um, like detail things that I, I don't want to focus on because I want to focus on the story and the characters. He goes, the heart of Star Trek is the characters. It, it's not even the science fiction concepts. It's these characters and how they react with these concepts. Um, and they all got their little moments in San Francisco. Um, and we got to poke fun at, at our society, you know. And, and <laughs> it, that was where the punk came in. It was in the script that Nick Meyer had written that there was a punk on the bus and listening to loud music. And uh, the way, it, yeah. And basically how it played was as, as it was, except the only thing different was I flipped him off. Spock gave me the neck pinch. And then as I pass out, he then did the Vulcan hand sign to me along uh -huh. passed out. And we just thought after shooting it, it's too much. Like you don't need it. Me passing out and everyone applauding was the <laughs> button to the scene. It, my, my, uh, my addition was that he was supposed to turn off the music. And I said, wouldn't it funnier if my face just plants on the... <laughs> so I hold it away. So when I, I pass out, my face hits the switch. Um, and so that's how it happened. And... I got the part because, again, it was in the script. And so we got the like second draft of the script and the scene was in there. And I, I had been in a, a band in high school and I'd had short kind of punky hair, not as drastic as it was in the film, but I knew about it. And I had a, a friend who cut, you know, would do razor cuts of, of punk hair. So I went to him. I said, look, I, I want to play the punk. And he's like, <clears throat> so this is how Leonard was. He'd be like, ah. Really? I said, yeah, I, I, I think I do a good job. Like, I, I know the music. I, I know that scene. I was good friends with punks. And uh, I, I, I did a sketch of what I would look like. Just because uh, I, I had an art background. So I did a little, which I still have. I actually found it like a couple of years ago. Um, so I did this sketch and I showed it to him. He's like, huh. All right. Well, let me think about it. And, you know, and I, look, I worked with him side by side every day. So I said, I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to harass him. I don't want to be a pain in the neck because I'm going to be with him for another year and a half. So about a week later, I went to the office and we had our meeting. At the end of the day, he would have a nice gin and tonic and we'd sit back and just talk about life and the pro the project and just, you know, what was going. He was such a personable guy. He'd ask me about my relationship. Like, how's it going with your girlfriend or how are your parents or, you know, and I'd, we'd talk about his kids and his grandkids and all that. Anyway, 
So about a week later, I was, we'd finished up. I was walking out of his office. Again, that's like one of those little, mo little clip, movie clip you'll remember for the rest <laughs> of your life. And he said, oh, one, one more thing. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? And he said, you can do it. And I knew exactly what it meant. I'm like, what? seriously? Oh, my God. Ser oh, okay. You're not going to regret this. It's gonna, uh, it's gonna, uh, I'm going to be so punk. So he kind of laughed because he's a very avuncular, happy guy. You know, he's thoughtful, but he's, he's got this deep laugh, you know. I mean, I still hear him in my head. That's how yeah. close we were. You know, he, he, his voice and his manner still live on. Um, and so I, I went and I put together the outfit and um, <laughs> I got my hair cut and dyed and and uh, so it could be a you mohawk. You say cut, I mean like you. I, I did I, just I, I just had you... longish hair. Yeah, I, I had it wasn't as long as it is now. It was somewhere between uh, uh, the dude in the Big Lebowski and well, it was about that length. So I had enough that if you you know uh, aquanetted it up, it would be like whatever it was six or eight inches. So I just basically had to shave the sides, bleach my hair twice to get it almost white and then color it bright orange um so i i, I did all that and we went to the hair and makeup trailer and they did it all up for for a test and i came outside and I remember i walked outside and d uh deforest kelly everyone just called him d was going into the trailer to do his makeup test which i guess they still did back then and uh he, he looked me up and down because i looked ridiculous you know i had mascara <laughs> and a dog collar and this whole outfit and uh, he looked me up and down. He said, hi, Kirk. I said, you know, giggling like, hey, D. He goes, nice shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the only thing I was wearing that wasn't particularly punk. Um, so I went to Leonard. He said, thumbs up. And then I had a bright orange mohawk. Well, I didn't aquanet it up every day for about three or four months until I finally dyed it, trying basically cut, cut it short and dyed it back to my natural hair color. But uh, we shot it actually driving on the Golden Gate Bridge. There was no green screen. And I think we went up and down three or four times uh, before I had to get off and just get back in street clothes because they had to put the camera essentially where I was sitting after, after they knocked me out, the camera kind of went there to that two shot. To the little, kind of um, like the little my dinner with Andre thing they do yes. on the Muni bus yes. after the punk is yes. knocked out. So you're ah, going, you're going. My, my line that kills me still to this day. <laughs> ah, the giants. Your use of language has altered since our arrival. It is currently laced with Shall I say more colorful metaphors? Double dumbass on you and so forth. You mean the profanity? Yes. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. You'll find it in all the literature of the period. For example? Well, the collected works of Jack and Suzanne. The novels are Harold Robbins. Ah. The Giants. <laughs> ah. The Giants. <laughs> That's Nick Meyer's sense of humor right there. But that joke still, I still giggle because it's just so snarky and funny. Anyway. You're you're in a Muni bus on, you mention it. I mean, I could tell, you know, it, it's an authentic Muni bus. There's, yeah. there's no designer who could get the graffiti right and get everything <laughs> exactly. right. We just rented the bus for three days to, and, you know, trick it out and pulls out, pull out seats so we can put the camera equipment in there. Do you get a Muni driver in that situation? I mean, what I, 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 think we, I have so I, that's many a questions. Good, yeah, I don't know. I think for insurance, we had to have uh, a transportation guy do it, but uh -huh. I'm not sure. That I don't know. You'd have to ask Ralph Winter that one. Did we hire a Muni driver? I mean, that would make more sense since that was his route and he kind of knew it. So that, that was a possibility, but I, I don't know.
There's, how many, there's, how many, your, there's your deep uh, cut interview. There, <laughs> how many how many takes are you doing? Are you improving? We only did only... Uh, we only did about three takes. Uh, the first one was blown because I was wearing this very cheap black leather jacket. You know, cheap black leather is almost like heavy cardboard. So when he gave me the pinch, I didn't feel it. So I'm trying to because you know the old gag only works if I'm not looking at him. So that's why I was rocking out, looking left and right like a bobblehead <laughs> before he pinched me. So I kind of I give him the hairy eyeball and I go over here. He pinches me and you know I spaz out and fall. Well, the first time I could only see him peripherally and I couldn't tell if he was pinching my neck or not. So I'm trying to trying to look and it just kind of blew the take. So we laughed and I said, "No, you really got to bear down." So I know that you're giving me the the neck pinch. And uh, so, yeah, I think we got it second, third take. We didn't do a lot of takes because, again, we had to shoot that whole scene before the sunlight changed very much. Yeah. And you and the bridge isn't that long. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> so I think I think we probably for my scene, we probably went up two or one or two times. And then I think we were there for half a day, you yeah. know, just covering it. And then the tricky part was because it's the real location, you had to kind of match where you were on the bridge when you did your coverage you know you couldn't just go oh they're talking the y2 shot and we're seeing a column of the bridge go by and then now they're in sausalito turning around so uh yeah that was that's just filmmaking (laughs) so i'm like i'm like 15 or 16 when this came out and um i'm right around the age where i'm getting into my like fresh fruit for rotting vegetables dead kennedys i had a cousin who worked for sst and he was sending me i remember spending all this time waiting listening to these albums waiting for this song to show up i mean this is before you could google it right right right. certainly nobody you wrote it i wrote and sang it yeah well (laughs) again i've told this story a few times but briefly the so we shot to no music at all i'm just popping my head to a beat kind of going in my head like knowing punk music it wasn't a waltz um so when it came time to put music in, the Paramount Music Department said, oh, we've got, you know, we have a deal with whatever Paramount Records was. And it was like, well, we have Duran Duran or, you know, uh, more like Euro uh, New Wave. And I said, that, uh-huh. I told Leonard, I said, look, that's not punk. This guy, you want this song to like make your ears hurt. And I said, I, I you know, I know what that music is. I, I, the Dead Kennedys and the Ramones and um, Black Flag, TSOL. Like that was the stuff I grew up listening to. And I said, I, I, you know, and, and Paramount said, well, we're not going to make a deal with those guys. We're not going to pay them for like, their song. I'm like, <laughs> so I said to Leonard, I'll write you a song because it's not hard. I mean, if you know three <laughs> licks on a guitar, you can write a Ramon song. And uh, so my, my inspiration was sort of like the uh, the Dickies, the Toy Dolls and uh, it, with the accent, the Sex Pistols. And just and I said, what is as you know, basically a person who grew up or not basically, an actual person who grew up in that era, what did I grow up feeling like? Well, with the Cold War was still on, the people don't maybe are thinking about this, but Russia still was, a, you know, we thought they were going to nuke us any day. I grew up with that, you know, the duck and cover days. And so I said, well, as an angry punk, what am I angry about? And it was that. It was like, just what is the future? The things we've done and said, let's just push the button. We'd be better off dead. And the punks, the ones that I knew, were very political. It was not, I mean, there were aesthetic punks who just, you know, thought it looked cool and wanted to piss off their parents. But I, I had a backstory for this guy and, and what his, his uh, 
you know, truths were just, it, it's fun. And, and 50% of it was after the fact before the movie came out. I'm like, all right, if people ask me, no one's ever has, but <laughs> well, I'm, I, that's my next question. Ah, this, came up, this came up during our, we had a recent, you know, uh, movie night and we're all yes, watching, I'm we're sorry, all on Twitter and everybody, we had a whole thread going about, well, why is this punk going to Sausalito? And then has right. he got a job just, there? Is yeah. He, so, <laughs> The whole story is he's going to Sausalito to his parents' house to do his laundry. Because <laughs> he's basically a kid from a, a Marin County middle class family, you know, upper middle class, because Marin County didn't have a lot of... Uh... And so in my mind, having lived in San Francisco and hung out in the city with punks and, and lived in Marin, he was going home to, like, get a meal and do his laundry. And then he was going to go back and crash, you know, with three other guys in, in some place south of Market and be an angry punk and go to clubs. But it was like, you know, it was probably, it wasn't a Saturday. It was probably going on a Monday or Tuesday when the clubs weren't really working. Um, so, yeah, my mind was he was basically angry about all the things that he'd grown up with but was sort of the shy kid until like his junior year in high school. He uh -huh. just didn't know he, he didn't have an outlet. So punk was his outlet. And uh, in, in my mind, that wasn't his song. Although people have asked me, is that that character song playing? I said, yeah, it could have been. I mean, it actually was. So maybe I should just stick with that. Um, so that's how the lyrics came up. But I also, uh, I mentioned the toy dolls and the Ramones uh, and the Dickies too. They had a sense of humor about their, anarchist sort of manifestos and yeah, so black flag too and yes avengers yeah, was, uh, i'm a big smart. avengers fan you it know, was but, smart anarchy it wasn't yeah. just like you know screw you guys you're jerks it was so i put things like i eschew you in there <laughs> and i also had to write something i couldn't say the f word so screw you they said was fine so i said well what rhymes with screw and i, I eschew you was a, a joke from college <laughs> When I went to UCLA with buddies of mine in the in the cartoon art department, we'd say, I eschew you. And I said, oh, I got to put it in there as an Easter egg for like three friends who would get it. But um, so that's how the song came about. And Mark Mangini, who was our sound designer, played the guitar. I, I went to him. I said, look, I have these lyrics and here's kind of the rhythm. And I said, and he knew punk and actually uh, uh, a sound editor, two of the other sound editors were musicians. So which isn't uncommon in animation and sound editing. So Mark played guitar, uh, a guy named uh, Aaron Glasscock played uh, the drums, and um, John Pospisil played, the, I think, the bass. But anyway, it was like a three-guy a three guy band, which was basically all you need for a punk band is a bass and lead guitar and a drummer. And we recorded it on a crappy mic in the hallway of the sound studio where they were doing uh, all the post-sound. So it would sound like a garage band punk recording, like something that, you know, I'd done with my friends in a, in a, in a loft in, in South of Market when that was an affordable place to do stuff. And then someone taped the tape. Yes, and then exactly. Well, got I mean, it in your, your boombox. Boombox, and it sat in the sun for a week. So I was like, yeah. What did Nimoy think of the song? Did you play it for him? Yeah, oh yeah. So he came in, I remember we recorded it on a, either a Friday or a Saturday morning, because I remember it was a Saturday when he came in to listen to a bunch of sound uh, stuff, mainly the whale noises. He was very concerned what this whale, what the computer sounded like, or the, yeah. the alien probe noise. So I came in to do that, and I said, hey, we, we got a version of the song, and we, you know, I wrote it so it would track out, so Screw You would be right about the time I flipped him off. You know, it was, it was designed to, you know, it was a film score, <laughs> as uh -huh. opposed to I'm just going to write a song, and it worked. And so he came in, he listened to it, and I remember listening, kind of frowning, you know, like, well, as you would, I think it might have been on headphones. And he's like, "Oh God," you know. And then he took the headphones off, and he, he looked at me. and said, "It's it's awful." 
And I said, well, and he goes, so it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and he had that dry smile. I mean, that's just a great sense of humor. He's like, oh, it's, it's either awful or it's terrible. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I was trying to start to make it. And he's like, so it's, it's perfect. <laughs> and he smiled and laughed. We'll be right back after this short break. Was the song ever on a soundtrack or anything? I'm, uh, it have was you ever released, gotten, gotten like a was, 12-cent residual check for this at any point? I get it way? from the movie because what's gotcha. funny is if you're a singer and if you're in SAG, I had to join the Screen Actors Guild, you get a residual. I mean, they're literally like 8-cent residuals. Um, through BMI, though, it's weird. It's like... Uh, yeah, I think the music rights are, are handled by BMI, um, which is, it's BMI and ASCAP. But uh, yeah, I didn't get, uh, it's funny, the, the, the on-camera appearances, because I have no lines, is technically, they call it a featured extra. Uh-huh. So I, I got it for the song. Um, anyway, I mean, I was so well taken care of, even just them making me, you know, associate producer was lovely. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing job. And I'd stayed friends with Leonard until he, literally we were, uh, texting or emailing each other till about a week before he passed away. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I, uh, amazing, amazing guy. I think it's a great film and I've written about I'm it. I'm very happy. I, I think it holds up so well. It's <clears throat> so positive. I think it's absolutely fantastic for the pandemic. I mean, just to sit down, you can watch it. There is no member of your family, only my wife and my friend Heather are like just like uh, too many spaceships and whales. I don't get what's oh, going really? on. Oh, really? Well, it was... it's because I think it's because there's exposition in the beginning. That, yes, you know, it's very people, who, people yes. who really, really aren't into track track. But even then, I mean, you get to San Francisco and it's fun. Yeah. I think everyone can watch it. It's got a positive message. Nothing's you know quote unquote problematic. It, 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 right. It's there's a, nothing. It's, you're like, oh god, that's embarrassing. Oh, god, you know, yeah. it's like it's not a ra- yeah. Um, well. And it's funny because it did twice the business, I think, of the other movies. I mean, it just was such a hit that it, it made Star Trek. It was, like people say, they call it the one with the whales. It was also the one that people that didn't like Star Trek watched. Not even, <laughs> yeah. I don't even say they liked, but they watched it and went, oh, that was fun. You know, I yeah. didn't know Star Trek was like that. But again, how many Star Trek movies <laughs> or TV episodes end up with the crew laughing in the ocean, <laughs> <laughs> splashing each other? I mean, none. <laughs> so it was such a unicorn in that way. And again, that all, you know, so much of that goes to Leonard and, and to Nick Meyer and, and Harv Bennett. Um, yeah, but really, I think Nick and, and Leonard pushed it and not to any way uh, not to pay service to, to Harv, who kept the, be- you know, he, Harv basically wrote the, the bookends, the beginning and the end, mm-hmm. which was very classic Star Trek. And then uh, uh, Nick did the, the contemporary, uh, you know, uh, the, the planet Earth in the year 20 or 20. I'm so used to it now. The year 1985, I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, great. Oh, it was one of my favorite jobs. <laughs> I was Do obviously you, enthusiastic about it. You've done so much cool stuff. You know, when you're at a con or something or just someone's approaching you, what what percentage of it is someone wanting to talk to you about Return of the Jedi or all the great Muppet stuff you've it's, done over the years? And, and what percentage funny. is just that moment, that punk on the bus and... It's funny. The punk on the bus is like an Easter egg for people. I know people have known me for 20 years who didn't know because I don't walk around going, hi, I played the punk. You know, it's just a thing I did. It was the only thing I did, maybe. But uh, it's funny. It depends on where I am and depends on the convention. When I was at, you know, uh, Celebration, the Star Wars con, it was all Star Wars. I mean, yeah, it was all Star Wars, Jedi, sign the picture of the Rancor or whatever. Uh, When I go to just generic sort of Comic-Con things, 
it's it's really a mix. What's weird is most people don't know all the things I've done because I, I kind of touched on a lot of things. Like I would say again, half more than half people didn't know I work on Gremlins. Because, you know, I didn't direct it or write it. I was just a crew member as opposed to, you know, Star Trek, I played a, a mm-hmm. character. And, um, but I went to Mexico for the only convention I've ever been down there. It was, a, it was about a 50,000 person size convention. So it wasn't tiny. And all they wanted to talk about was dinosaurs. Wow. Jedi, Star Trek. I'm nothing wrong really, with it. but No, I, but it's, wow. it's, it turns out that dinosaurs is the Simpsons in Mexico and other South American countries. They, I never, you know, if I, if people say I'm going to be there getting autographs, I might get 10 or 12 people and trickle in through the day, maybe another 10 or 12. I had 300 people lined up to get my, I, I was like, this is crazy. But yeah, uh, I probably signed up to 500 autographs in, in three days. So yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that was shocking. Well, um, I got to say you're, you're a legend here now. I mean, it comes uh, up in social media. Really? Really? It comes up. All I mean, things that have nothing to do with you right. start talking about Muni and, and <laughs> Punk on the Bus, you know. Should we just do so PunkCon? Just I'll just come up <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I said for my 60th birthday, which is about a year and a half away, I'm going to uh, shave my head and dye it orange again and, and do the punk makeup and then dye my goatee orange so you get the full stri- skunk stripe. <laughs> uh, for some reason, I thought that would be fun, if nothing else, to mark a major milestone. Yeah. Uh, but that's great. I, I had no idea. I mean, I knew that Trek fans, you know, it, it's an, in fact, there was a poll a couple of years ago that somebody sent to me and said, Hey, look, you're, you're in this. And it was like, I think it was called like top 20 or top 10 most liked famous something, you know, lauded Trek moments. And I, it, the punk was like number two. Yeah. I, I was shocked. I was like, wow. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> it's luck of the draw fate and just right place, right time. And have it, you know, it's a combination of so many things. I, I just, and very fortunate and grateful to have been able to work on it. You know I mean? Not, not only Leonard Nimoy, but the whole crew, Ralph Winter, still a friend, amazing guy. It was just the same thing. I've been very fortunate in almost every group I've worked with has kind of ironed out the kinks before I got there, especially in my first 10 years. You know, Star uh, Star Wars, all that crew had worked together. The ILM guys were sort of a family. And then I went to Gremlins, which was Joe Dante and his team had worked together. And Chris knew him. Then Star Trek, which they'd been around 20, 25 years at that point. And then I met Jim Henson. And again, he'd, he'd had a company since 1962 or something, since the year I was born. And then we hit it off. Um, and what year was that? When, when that did was you... 87. I have, so that I was have to... right after. Yeah, it was, a, I think. Trek come out in 86 or 87? 86, yeah. 86. So it was the summer of 86 I met Jim and then started working with him freelance because he was based in in New York and I was in LA. So he'd fly me out for meetings and I'd go home back to LA and do drawings. And so I started out as a designer kind of idea guy. And then in uh, 1988, I moved to New York for a year to work on the Jim Henson Hour where I designed a bunch of characters and again, kind of an idea guy. Came back to L.A., worked on RoboCop 2 for about five months up in the Bay Area with Phil Tippett. And then uh, I worked at Disney Imagineering for about nine months. And during the Imagineering time, uh, I flew back to New York twice to uh, go over this idea that Jim had called Dinosaurs. And it was like he wanted to do a sitcom about dinosaurs, but what he really wanted to do with it is, is kind of highlight and parody dinosaur thinking you know, ecological, just like, oh, we, are, we run the planet, we can do whatever we want, that sort of apex predator 
I don't care, you know, screw you, anything in the pyramid below me, because I can, you know, we're the, we're the apex predator, uh, the master race, if you will. And so I start, I, I met with him, went home, did a bunch of drawings, met with him a second time. We had lunch, went over the drawings, had a nice chat. And that was a Friday. And I stayed in New York over the weekend to see friends because I'd lived there just a couple of years earlier and go to my favorite, you know, do my favorite New York things. Flew home Monday and I think Tuesday morning I got the phone call. Jim just passed away last night. <sighs> and I was like, how, what was he know? I thought he was in a car wreck because like I just had lunch. I mean, literally three, four days earlier I had lunch with him and he was, you know, and they explained the whole thing with the galloping pneumonia. And so I jumped on the next plane back to New York and stayed there for a week with friends and just kind of was in shock. Um, but then long story short, Disney was going to buy the Henson company. And so they greenlit and they had ABC at that point. So they greenlit dinosaurs and then jumped into designing all the characters and supervising the build. And then the writing, the producers who were the head writers made me a, a writing producer on it or co-producer, uh, because I just, I was an idea guy and they said, you should write. And I had been writing on my own, never for pay, so they made me a member of the writing staff and I would, I would design, we'd have writers meetings and we'd all punch up the script and then they go, we need these new characters for this story. So I'd go in my office and drop the designs and send it to the creature shop mm-hmm. so they could start building it because, you know, we didn't have a, a, a closet full of dinosaurs and creatures to pull from. Uh, so that was great. And it was a great way to kind of transition into the new Henson company where Brian, his son was had taken over who I really didn't know. I'd met him once when I was in London with Jim mm-hmm. and, uh, and then I had a great 10 years working with, with uh, 10 or 12 years working with the Henson family and the Muppets. And I started out as uh, a writer and then co-wrote Muppet Treasure Island with Jerry Jewell, who was basically the first guy Jim hired. Legend. I mean, yeah. Amazing guy. And, and a Bay yeah. area guy too. He, he, he had a place in uh, Mendocino and a, a, a little pied-à-terre in, in the city. And I think so, Dave, Dave Goals is... Dave uh, Goals lives in Marin County area, he, yeah, yeah. He still is... Yeah, uh, still, oh no, he's still Puppeteers, Gonzo, yeah. and Bunsen Honeydew. Um, so the Bay Area is a, has a big... And Frank Oz <laughs> and his father came from the Bay Area. There's a big Muppet connection to that energy. Yeah. Um, so I started writing, co-wrote Muppet Treasure Island, and then co-created and write it, uh, write it? <laughs> I are a writer. <laughs> English are my firsted language. Um, wrote, uh, worked, produced and wrote on um, uh, Muppets Tonight. We won an Emmy for that. The only award I've ever, well, I did win an award for dinosaurs for a, uh, an environmental media award for writing Changing Nature, uh, the, which was the last episode where they basically destroy the planet. Um <laughs> So I said I got I got I got an award for killing them. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, worked on uh, Muppets Tonight, and then started directing. I'd been directing little segments for them, pretty much through the mid '90s. After Treasure Island, I started doing little shorts for. They had a channel for a couple of years with um, the Hallmark people's called Hallmark Henson, and uh, so I did these little Muppet, almost like what you'd call now, like uh, viral videos. Yeah, Except I remember like Bohemian Rhapsody and stuff like that. Well, I remember yeah. being passed around and yes, yeah. that that started in the 2000s. So in 2000, I started directing full time. It's funny, I I wasn't a Muppet writer anymore. Now I was a Muppet director. Um, so uh, although I did write some stuff that didn't didn't get made, but yeah, directed two or three projects: uh, Very Merry Muppet Christmas, Muppets Wizard of Oz, and Muppets Letters to Santa. And right around the time Letters to Santa happened, which was around 2008. 
the viral video phenomenon happened, which led up to ultimately, yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody, which is close to 90, 100 million views now at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so I've been sort of a freelancer with the, the Henson Company and Disney. I said the, the Hensons and Muppets at Disney for since about, 19, well, since about 2000. It seems like they have a different spin on it each time and i almost wish they'd have someone like well you look at like Lasseter. man like yeah or john that's great you know or, or you know mandalorian now it's like dave filoni like yes. is you well know, i've offered he's myself the DNA. Up for that job. <laughs> you know? i've offered so, myself since uh and i found this at, at jim's funeral and i didn't say anything until they sold it to disney but the ceo of the company had told me or coo uh yeah at jim's funeral he said you know jim wanted you to be the creative head because he was selling the company to Disney and he wanted to kind of step back and he wanted you to be the day-to-day -day creative head of the Muppets and I was like wow and you know and but his son had just taken over like Poom, I can't say anything yeah, I'm yeah. like a jerk and people just be like why what a horrible person so until Disney bought it and then Lisa Henson uh five years ago when we did I did a movie called uh Turkey Hollow Lisa said Kirk was Jim's protege so I'm like all right if she says that I'm comfortable saying yeah because yeah. uh, I hate talking about myself to promote myself i don't mind talking about my career like obviously yeah, yeah. we've been doing but but I, i'm kind of as you said the dave filoni the kevin feige who's who's a friend um i love a what they're doing because they're not just making spider-man movies you know <laughs> gardens of the galaxy was a huge risk and it was the biggest payoff for them muppets are not doing anything really except what are kermit piggy fozzy gonzo doing and and again that's fine but you're you're shrinking the brand you're not growing the brand and yeah. that's what was great working about jim he's like yeah the muppets are great we're doing this muppet thing but we're also doing you know labyrinth and dark crystal so what i'm planning on doing is just starting my own, i'm going to crowdfund my own puppet franchise <laughs> because i can all the people that work for the muppets aren't don't have a contract anywhere so i can create new characters basically what i do if the disney would let me do it but they don't seem interested so it's their franchise they can do what they want so I want to start my own franchise or, or franchises uh, which use puppets in a way that's somewhere between what the Muppets do and, uh, you know, uh, Pixar movies. So, yeah, so that's what I'm up to now, trying to make my own stuff and still work with the Muppets and work with the Henson Company if they'll have me. They don't, right now, not they're doing Fraggle Rock, which is not my, you know, bailiwick. I like more the Muppets and older, not younger. Yeah, so. I'm the same way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's the other thing. I, I think it's funny around the world, all the other English-speaking countries in the world, which I've visited all of them except for New Zealand, the Muppets are like Monty Python. They're not a kid show. They're a kid-friendly show, but they're a comedy troupe. Whereas in America, it, they're considered, oh, they're the slightly older version of Sesame Street, which they're not. You no, know, no. It, I, I remember. I was a, no. I was yeah, a kid, and age. I remember I watched it. It was the first show I watched with my parents. Yeah. And then I'd go to school, and like the school librarian at my elementary school was talking about it. You know, yeah. we, we were able to. It was like almost like the Connect. first meme. You know, because well, we could it, make <laughs> do the same voices and make the right. same jokes that we had heard the weekend before. Well, and it was a parody of the Sonny and Cher show and Steve. You know, the, these shows that these variety shows that had been on in the seventies. Which were family shows. They weren't kid shows, but because they were puppets, and because I, I think, and again, Sesame Street is this juggernaut, but because Sesame Street was so huge and, and every generation grew up with it, I think the Muppets are thought of as a kid's franchise as opposed to like Pixar movies are not kids' movies, they're movies that are kids 
kid uh, safe. Do you? I'll, I'll close with that. Do you? Do you get back up here often? You said you had some roots here. I have fam. And- yeah, I have family there. This year, of course, I didn't. But usually, I'm up uh, a couple times a year uh, in the East Bay. Uh, it's funny. Nobody's in the city anymore. They're either. I have friends in Marin. Well, I have friends in the city, but family is either in the East Bay and particularly Walnut Creek, Danville area, and um, Los Altos, uh, Menlo. Uh, so, but I always spend time in the city. I love Golden Gate Park. I love to go on Stowe Lake and row a boat around and, and go to the, uh, I just, yeah, Golden Gate Park is my, just my heart. I just love yeah. that. And the Muir Woods, you know, when I lived in Marin. I love it up there. So, uh, yeah, next time I, I pop up, we'll go have a, <laughs> hopefully not it doesn't even have to be a socially distant meal or yeah drink. i would love yeah. that um and again i you're you get humble when i say this but you're beloved up here i mean it's, oh uh, it makes me happy because i i love the love is mutual i love that city i love yeah. so many different parts of it i i when my nephew turned 18 and was going to go to uh san francisco state i said i'm going to take you up there for three days and give you a locals tour of what's great about San Francisco. And so we did, I gave him the drive and went to all my favorite neighborhoods and kind of said, this area has this, and this area is known for this. You'd get great coffee here. It's where you get great Italian seafood here, you know, and uh, it was fun for me because I got to revisit a bunch of places. Um, we went to the Tonga, uh, the Tonga room for dinner. <laughs> nice. You're a tiki bar guy. Oh, huge tiki nut. Yeah. I got yeah. a tiki bar, at, well, tiki room at home. Like in family rooms, all tiki and, Trader Vic's. I was going to Trader Vic's in the '80s when I lived in in Marin, and that was a you know it was not hip. It was very kitschy, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it still is, but that was uh yeah. San Francisco has so much to offer. I, I I'm really saddened to hear that it, it's been kind of hit as hard as it has yeah. uh, financially by. But you know, so is so is L.A. We're gonna come back though. Oh yeah, yeah I, I think it always does. San Francisco has been hit by a lot over the oh, years. Oh yeah, I mean we a couple earthquakes over the last hundred years and. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been really fun. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thanks for coming on. Awesome. And uh, I don't know what's uh, what's the cat. Did they ever find a San Francisco theme song? I remember there was a contest years (laughs) ago. So, because a friend of mine wrote, tried to write. You know, it it was I left my heart in San Francisco, and they go, "It's sad. We want an upbeat song about San Francisco." Maybe we'll get the punk on the bus. There you go. Oh, that'd be fast, upbeat kind of punk version. I would love to do a, a punk version of I Left My Heart or write an original song about San Francisco. I like Which it. It basically would be called, like, Screw You, L.A. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think a lot of West Coast cities, would that would be their theme song these days. <laughs> Everyone's leaving here in droves. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm rooting for everybody right now. Yeah, yeah. As, well, as we all are. Yeah. Course, as true Americans. Yeah. For everybody. Well, thank right, you, man. sir. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. And have a great uh, rest of your week. I'll do that. Take care. Darling, it's 2 a.m. It's time for closing. The cops, they're all sideways. And I think Aaron's You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Heather Knight and my guest, Kirk Thatcher. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com pod.